Well, good morning again. Good morning again. You know, our, our hymn in my church, that, that, if you don't know that uh, that song is, is a hymn, uh, Chris Tomlin has added a, a few um, lines to it uh, in the chorus, but the, the words, and he repeated them, but if you go to the third verse of that song, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing, the third verse reads like this, O to grace, how great a debtor, for daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy corpse above. You know, if we sing these hymns and these songs, as we just listened to, and we, we focus and meditate on the words as we sing them in an act of worship, what we're doing is we're praying. If you read through the old hymns and even some of the new Christian music, the more contemporary music, if you listen to what the words are saying, the artists are trying to convey through the lyrics a prayer to God. Come back out of every blessing is one of my many favorites. I, don't, I, I might as well just say I like the whole hymnal because I, I pretty much every week I say that's my favorite hymn. Um, and they really all are because it's, it's somebody else's words portraying what I feel in my heart knowing that I'm not significant enough for God. But knowing that although I'm a sinner and although I'm a wretch, like the words of Amazing Grace that John Newton wrote so long ago, that His grace saved a wretch like me. You know, I have a, I have a, 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 a little anecdotal story here to, to um, kind of segue into our, our message this morning. And, um, you know, I, I used to tell humor before I started the sermon, and that's a chance for people to turn to the passage of Scripture and, and to uh, get kind of settled into the mood of listening um, so we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 24 through 32. And after we're going to be finishing off the, the chapter 26 in the book of Acts as we continue our journey through that book. So Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 24. And as we're turning to Acts 26, 24, I want to tell you a little story, a little anecdote. Um, it's not true uh, by any means, but, but it's, it's a funny story that we can look at to where we're going today about truth of the gospel. Um, there was a group of scientists that met uh, recently, and they decided they no longer needed God. They, they, they realized of all the miraculous things that they were able to do in their own strength, and they, they, they elected one person to be the spokesperson and go tell God that they, long, they no longer needed Him anymore. So, the lucky or unlucky one, however your perspective may be, goes to God and he says, God, we don't need you anymore. He presents his case, and ultimately his case was weak. Man can do many miraculous things without you. We can even make another human being. So God listens patiently as he often does. In his patience and his long-suffering, he listens to the man plead his case, and he says, okay, how about this? I'll make a deal with you. We're each going to have to make a man. And the scientist eagerly says, okay, and God said, but there's one caveat. We have to do it the way we first did it, the way I did it so long ago, with dirt and dust. 
Scientist still excited says, okay, and he, start, he bends over and he goes to scoop up this big handful of dirt. And God says, whoa, 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 go get your own dirt. Go get your own dirt. See, the, the point of that story is we get so prideful in our abilities that we, we mistake the truth of the gospel message that we cannot do anything on our own accord. The truth of the matter is, is that the scientists in their arrogance and their pride went to prove, wanted to prove to God that they no longer needed him. Sounds like what we're going through today in, in our world today with science and everything always pointing to testify against the existence of God. They've made movies about it. There's theories about it. But one thing that we fail to realize is that it started somewhere, and that somewhere is with God. Let's, let's read from Acts 26 today. And as we read, there's three points I want us to consider that we're going to go over in more detail here in a few moments. The first one is being radical for Christ. Being radical for Christ. The second one is truth prompts action. And the third and final point we're going to cover today is why will we preach the gospel? Why will we preach the gospel? So if we're, going to, we're going to read, and if you take your word, your double-edged sword here, as I have in my hand, or if you want to read from your electronic device, that's fine too. But we're going to start in, in Acts 26, starting in verse 24. And the words of Dr. Luke are recorded as such. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Paul Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am except for these chains. The king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come today offer up our prayer, a request, that as we go through this passage of Scripture this morning, that you help us to understand the truth that lies within the Scriptures, the application, the life practical application that we can draw, that we should be radical for you. We have to know that truth requires, always requires, an action. And this passage of Scripture also teaches us why we preach the gospel. Why do we preach the gospel? I pray that as we go through these verses today in this expositional type style of preaching, that you will give me the words to say via the Holy Spirit to those who are listening in the audience. And I pray that they will be lifted up and encouraged with these words. They will be convicted as they need to be convicted. Their conscience and their spirit stirred to make decisions based on the truth that's going to be presented here today. We ask you this blessing. 
We ask you this request in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So let's let's get into the to the message here. The first few verses in verses 24 and 25. That this is where we really understand being radical for Christ. And this is a this is the bulk of my message this morning is going to come from just these few verses because we have to understand a lot of information to under to understand what Festus is doing. So the, the first thing that we see is Festus accuses Paul of, of being driven mad because of his great learning. Well, we have to understand Festus is a Gentile governor. He knows nothing, uh, he really doesn't know anything of the matters. Of, of Judaism or Christianity for that point. And, um, and, and it was, it's not uncommon, even today, for a judge in a court to interrupt an attorney to clarify, ask a question, or make, or make even an objection. And just as it was back then, it was not uncommon. And since Festus called this meeting together for King Agrippa to hear Paul's defense, Festus interrupts Paul. But we have to understand that Paul's address was to King Agrippa. It wasn't to Festus. Festus is just an innocent bystander there. He accuses Paul of madness. The original Greek is mania, which means to, in, in, um, in, in English today, I say to people, you must be outside your mind. That's my way of saying you have to be utterly crazy. That's exactly what Festus is saying to Paul. You must be outside your mind. Too much learning is bad for your mental state, apparently. You can't handle all the intellect going on in your brain. But what we have to understand here is mastery of the scriptures, mastery of the oracles of God is not directly proportional to great learning. Jesus Christ himself, when he sat in the temple, as recorded in John chapter 7, 15, John chapter 7, 15, it says, The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? You don't have to have great education to be considered mad because of our radical beliefs in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, his young apprentice, his young disciple Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, You, talking to Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You don't have to have some seminary education from Southeastern or Southwestern or Liberty or any other seminary to understand the oracles of God's truth. Yeah, many pastors, we do go to formal Bible teaching, and it's, and it's, it's highly recommended that we do because it helps us fine-tune and, and it's part of the preparation to serve in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But the average person does not need to go to seminary to understand the oracles of God. All they got to do is read it. Because the exact same materials that are available to me as a scholar, and I use the term very loosely because I have a degree, does not mean that those same materials are not available to you at home. The part is that we have to have the desire to want to get to know Jesus Christ. We have to have the desire to be radical for Jesus. Because we are not of the world... Because Jesus Christ is not of this world, as he says in the Gospel of John. We are aliens. Our home is not here. It is in heaven. And we're residing here. So we're not going to be like the people around us. We're going to be different. And that's okay. We should be different. Because when we start to assimilate to the world, it's when we start to walk away from God. Like the song, Come Thy Thou Every Blessing said, Prone to wander, God, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
understand the resurrection. Resurrection, it appears to be an, it's an insane concept to a Greco-Roman person. Uh, Daryl Bach, in his commentary on this passage of Scripture, says that he, he uses the words learned speculation. Uh, Festus is basically accusing Paul of all his learning has caused him to speculate falsely on the actual events that transpired after Jesus' death and burial. It has the sound of wisdom, but it's not believable. Because the Romans, at best, believe only in the immortality of the soul. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection, which is very difficult for me to understand because the Pharisees did. Jesus made it happen himself in John chapter 11 when he resurrected Lazarus. Elisha and Elisha the prophets both resurrected a small boy, a different boy for each one. Peter resurrected Tabitha or Dorcas in the book of Acts. Paul resurrects Eutychus in the book of Acts. So there are, there are references and records of people being resurrected by others than Jesus Christ himself. And he is the Lord of the resurrection. So why they don't, why they don't believe in a bodily resurrection is beyond me because it's a historical fact. It occurred. And it still occurs. But we get into the main beef that Festus had. The gospel appears as foolishness. The gospel appears as foolishness. You know, Paul, on his missionary journeys, he, he, he goes to this place called Corinth, and it's in Greece. And in this place called Corinth, they're, they're Greek people because they're located in Greece, in the, in the peninsula of Macedonia, in that area over there. And in his first letter to the church in Corinth, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 22 and 25, 22 through 25, Paul addresses this very topic to this very same Greco-Roman world. He says in verses 22 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 4, Indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul trying to relate, and what am I trying to use this passage of Scripture for today? I'm trying to tell you that the world will see us as foolish if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we practice the things that Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments in his word. He says that. It's his word. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If we follow the commandments of Jesus Christ, the world is going to look at us as foolish. We might even have Christian friends that may look at us as foolish for trying to do what's right. Because our answer, we don't answer to an earthly power, we answer to an almighty God. And to people on this earth, it may appear foolish. We may do, we may do things, and we may be higher ethically and more in our morality and our ethics of, of behavior. We may be a little bit higher than someone on this earth that accounts themselves a Christian, and they may accuse us of being crazy. And you know what? That's okay, because we answer to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And to the world, that's foolishness. It's foolishness to put our hope. And somebody who died, who was crucified and died 2,000 years ago and was raised 2,000 years ago, it's foolishness to the world to believe in such a thing. And Paul addresses that in that passage of Scripture. He addresses the cynicism and the skepticism of Christianity. 
The Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, it says they seek wisdom because if it appears nonsensical, it's foolishness. And to them, it appears nonsensical to believe that somebody resurrected and is now living, even though we can't see them. The very foolishness, according to the Greeks and the, and the Romans in this time, in the world today, is, is very foolish to believe in salvation through Jesus Christ. In fact, there's this, there's this modern, this postmodern thought called universalism. And universalism, in short, is basically the belief that all paths lead to God. Universalism, in a nutshell. I had to write a 15-page paper on it, and I just summarized the whole thing in one sentence. Universalism is the belief that all paths lead to God. People today don't believe. People today, in this day and age, in this world today, maybe even some people listening, don't believe that Jesus Christ exists. They ascribe Christianity as a falsehood, as a lie, as a crutch that people need to get through life. We have to believe in something, so we might as well believe in Jesus. That's what they believe. I've been told that before, that Christianity is a crutch to help people get through life. We have to believe in something. They believe man has made these learned spec speculations contrary to Scripture. There have been unfounded attempts in the past to disprove the existence of God. But you know what's funny? The more they seek to disprove Christianity, the more they have to change their story. I'm going to give you an example. There's a law, and it's, it's, it's been a while since I've been in science class, so, so bear with me if I misquote this. But there's a law called the Law of Conservation of Mass. And it basically says that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. And that's a law that we're governed to within our universe. Scientists all agree on that. But they say, they used to say, that the Earth started together with a Big Bang Theory. Something just happened, some explosion happened from somewhere, and, it, and here comes the universe in this evolutionary theory of billions of years ago. My one question to that theory is, well, if matter can either be created or destroyed, and everybody agrees with that, then how did you get the matter to cause the explosion? And they can't answer me. And scientists in the past 20 years have realized that, so now they say, well, we believe in an intelligent designer. Somebody designed it, and then they just left it. See, they've already had to concede their biggest part of their story that they had for half a decade, excuse me, half a century. The Big Bang Theory. They had to concede that there was an intelligent designer. They had to, because it made absolutely no physical sense based on the limitations we have on this earth and in our universe that matter cannot be created or destroyed. But you know what? God exists outside of our realm. He exists outside of the universe because he created it, and he can do whatever he wants. And that's why in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's a Latin term, it means ex nihilo, it means out of nothing. He created it because he can. God is not limited by the limits that he placed inside of our universe. He's not limited by that at all. And that's why people call it foolishness, because they just cannot grasp that something is bigger than their mind. They cannot grasp the infinite. They don't understand it. And so they choose because they can't understand it. They choose to say it doesn't exist. Well, that's circular logic. Just to say because we don't understand something, to say it doesn't exist is foolishness. Look at the people back in the day that said the earth was flat. It wasn't until someone settled around the earth that they said, oh, it's not flat anymore. 
They had to be shown, they had to be proven that it was wrong or else they weren't going to believe. Of all the scientific progresses that we've made over the past centuries, especially over the last century, you would think that all this would point to, wow, God has given us this ability to learn and grasp concepts and to continue to learn about everything. There's more truth that happened in the past 20, 30 years in archaeological discoveries in the Middle East that proved the validity of the Bible than there ever has been in the times before. And people still want to question the existence of God. Because they say it's foolishness, because they can't understand it, because they can't see it, they can't touch it, they can't taste it, they can't hear it. So Christianity is radical. It's a radical thought to those who don't believe. How can you believe in something that doesn't exist? How can you believe in some made-up theory that man made to try to explain something? No matter how smart these scientists are, no matter how smart these people appear to be in their life, they all get to a point where they can't prove something. So they create a theory. Because theories can either be created or destroyed. Excuse me. Theories can either be proven or disproven. Can't be created or destroyed. They make a theory because they know that nobody can disprove it, but they can't prove it, so it makes them sleep better at night. That they figured it out. So I have a question. Are we known as radical? I got a better question. Do we risk our reputation to serve the Lord? Do we risk our reputation to serve the Lord? Do we risk our friendships to serve the Lord? Do we risk what people think about us to serve the Lord? Do we risk everything we have to serve the Lord? Because if we don't, then we're not serving God. Jesus said to pick up your cross daily and follow me. He says in the, in, the, in the Gospels, he says, if you don't hate your mother, hate your father, hate your sister, your brother, if you don't hate your own life, you can't follow me. That's what he says. That's what he says. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just relating to you a message. So think about that. If we can't lay aside all of our beliefs, if we can't lay aside all of our encumbrances that hold us back, then we cannot serve God. In fact, Jesus also says, we can't hold on to our life. In John 12, 25, he says, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, he says, Jesus said, Then I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And you know what? He's not referring to some lip service, I believe in Jesus. He's referring to your witness, your testimony on this earth. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to watch me on a Sunday morning and say I'm a Christian. But then you go out and live the way you want to. That ain't how this works. That's not being radical for Jesus. If anything, you're doing more to harm the gospel of Jesus Christ than you're doing to help it. Because the very fact of the matter is, when you do what you want and not what God wants, you're doing exactly that, what you want to do. You're not loving Jesus because you're not keeping his commandments. So you can't be declared radical for Jesus Christ. The world's just going to see you as one of them. There's one of them Christians over there. That's what they're going to say. But it's not going to be with goodness. It's going to be with a mockery and a hypocritical attitude because they're going to say, well, there's that guy who believes or that girl who believes over there in Jesus Christ, but they're doing all the things of the world that we do. So what's the difference between Jesus Christ or someone who follows Jesus and me? 
They don't get to see the truth. They don't get to see the radical behavior and the radical new lifestyle. What do they see? They see what they do every day. The only difference between you and them is you say you're a Christian. That's, That's the only difference is a word, Christian. And if that's the salvation you believe in, that's how easy believism. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. So Paul says, in this, this last part of this verse 25, he says, I am not uh, out of my mind, most excellent Festus. He, he still addresses Festus in a respectful tone. He says, but I utter words of sober truth. Sober truth. The sobering truth is what I just told you. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not teach that you can say you believe in Jesus and go do what you want. Jesus has to be the Lord of your life. He's the director. He's the orchestrator. He's the man who you go to and ask permission to do things. He's the man who you seek to seek and be obedient to what he has called you to do, which is to deny yourself and to follow him. And Paul's words literally mean from the original language. He's like, I'm, I have a sound mind, a sound body, and what I'm telling you is reasonable. This is reasonable to believe. It's a true record of the events. And then the last point here is the reason people choose not to believe because they don't want to be held accountable. They don't want to be held accountable. We're inherently selfish human beings. So why on earth would we want to be held accountable to somebody that we can't see? Because we don't truly believe. If we truly believe that Jesus Christ walked this earth, died on the cross at Calvary for our atonement of our sins, was buried, and resurrected himself out of the grave on the third day, then that should be all the proof that we need that he exists. And that should be what we should be running to every single day to serve him and glorify him in our actions and our lives. Our second point, truth prompts action in verses 26 through 28. He says, for the king knows about, this is what Paul says to Festus, for the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. <coughs> Excuse me. King Agrippa understands. You know why King Agrippa understands? Because he's a Jew. That's why he understands. He knows exactly what Paul is talking about. He's a Hellenistic Jew. He's one of those Jews that, um, like I just mentioned, he's, he's a Jew outwardly, but he's not a Jew inwardly. He lives like a Roman. He's, but he celebrates his Jewish heritage, and that's why they made him king, because he gets to choose the high priest because the Roman government trusts him. And he's trusted by Rome to make other decisions. Case in point. Felix, the governor, is trusting, excuse me, Festus, the governor, is trusting King Agrippa's uh, discernment and wisdom of all these matters when Paul is getting his defense to give him a recommendation of what should and shouldn't happen. King Agrippa knows recent history. Matter of fact, his great-grandfather, uh, Herod, was, was the same with the Herod that uh, was ruling whenever Christ was born. And his uh, father, I want to say it was his father, was the one who killed John the Baptist and um, put Peter in prison. He knows the recent history. The acts of Christ did not happen in private. The actions of the apostles were not private. Christianity was the talk of the town. 
Everybody was trying to figure out how to squash this. Everybody was figuring out how, trying to figure out how to stop it. Paul himself, the very man giving this defense, is the same man that was seeking Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem so they could be persecuted and killed. Then he asked a unique question. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Do you believe the prophets, he said. Paul knows he doesn't. Because he says, I know that you do. Because he's a Jew. The question is, do we believe the prophets? The significance is, the prophets testify about Christ, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And in John chapter 5, we have a few verses of scripture. Um, in verses 39 through 47 of John chapter 5, it reads like this. You search the scriptures, this is Jesus speaking. Because the, 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 the scriptures testify about Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another man comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do you think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope? For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe these things, how will you believe my word? The scriptures, the prophets, the law, all of it testifies to Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at. See, people deny scripture as truth. They do, believe it or not. If you go back to, to the words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, All scripture, all scripture, all, A-double-L, all scripture. That means this whole book, the whole thing, all that are written down in here, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture testifies about itself. If you pick up a Bible, you will find that it always references back to itself. Always. I'm going to go through, through a little segue here about inerrancy. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's not a completely 100% relevant to, to the passage, but it's relevant to, our, to our, our sermon. Inerrancy means the Bible's without error. That's what inerrancy literally means. Without error. So the Bible is inerrant. You know, there's different perspectives on that. Matter of fact, it wasn't too long ago that they, they uh, some people decided that they were going to make a, a statement that the, the only things in the Bible that were relevant and true were those things pertaining to salvation. There's a, there's a denominational position out there, a denomination of Christianity that put that out about 34 years ago. That the scriptures are only truthful, 100% truthful on the doctrines of salvation. Other than that, it's, it's subjective. Do you believe that? There is a Christian, claiming Christian group of people that said, and they put out their followers, that the only thing that's 100% truthful in the Bible is the scriptures pertaining to the doctrine of salvation. That's sad. 
that the world has assimilated the Bible and Christianity to the point that people will believe that the only thing that's 100% truth is what obtains the salvation. The whole thing testifies about itself. You can't believe the parts about salvation if you don't believe the parts about God's wrath. You can't believe the New Testament if you don't believe the Old Testament because the New Testament comes from the Old. It's a fulfillment of the Old Testament. You can't, you can't take parts of the Bible and say, well, that's true and that's not true. You cannot do it because you're not smart enough to do it. That's why. There's 66 books authored by 40 different people that were inspired by God over the course of 1,500 years. God inspired them to write down what was written. And if you want to believe one thing and not the other, then you're the one at fault, not God. Who are we to believe that we can dissect a Bible that's been around longer than all of us put together have been alive and think that we're smart enough to do it? That's insane. But people choose to do it. And the reason why people choose to do it is because truth requires action. See, truth, anytime truth is preached, it requires an action. And that action leads to one of two things. Either people accept it or people deny it. And the reason why people want to change what the Bible says is because they don't want to be held accountable for what the scriptures teach. Because heaven forbid they have to stop doing what they wanted to do because they're selfish. Heaven forbid they have to surrender their life to Jesus Christ and actually follow a set of guidelines that's going to make them a better person. Heaven forbid they do that. What they want to do instead is take the parts of the Bible that they want to follow and follow them and stand on them and the rest of it they want to throw in the garbage. But you can't do that. You can't do that. The scriptures say the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts to the quick. It cuts to the marrow. And the reason why it does it is because it's all-inclusive. You can't, you can't split it. It's take it all or don't take any of it. Believe all of it or don't believe any of it. There is no middle ground. King Agrippa recognizes Paul's attempt to offer this compelling evidence, and he responds in an ironic statement. And he says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. I'm not going to get into the semantics of that today, but I want us to understand something. Once we're presented with the truth, like I said a minute ago, we either choose to obey it and accept it, or we choose, choose to deny it and reject it. You either choose to accept or you choose to reject. Those are the only two options. There's no middle ground. Truth always prompts a response. Which leads us to why we preach the gospel. We want everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm a bivocational pastor. And, and some of that's because of just default. Southern Baptist churches uh, have had bivocational pastors since as far back as, as I've done research. Paul was a bivocational pastor. He was a tent maker. He made tents during the day and preached at night. I tell people when they ask me what I do, I say I work for the river by the day and I'm a preacher at night. But in reality, I'm a bivocational. It means I have two jobs. I have two full-time jobs. There, there's some pastors I know and respect, and they say bivocational pastor means full-time pastor with part-time pay. But I don't come to Darlington on a Sunday morning to preach to a camera because I have to. I don't even come because you pay me. I come because I want the world to know Jesus Christ and I want him to know Jesus Christ. Died, buried, and rose again on the third day so we can have life eternal through Jesus Christ through the Father. 
Because he's a mediator and a high priest. That's why I do this. I do this because I've been called by God to present truth on a regular basis and watch as people don't do anything with it. That's what I've been called to do. To work tirelessly to preach Christ with both words and with actions. To live a life that people can look at and say, well, I know he's not perfect, but he seems to be, based on the evidence of his life and the actions of his family, to be displaying fruits that shows that he's following a godly lifestyle. That's what I do. I'm not here for the money. I'm not here because some people wanted me here or voted me here. I'm here because God put me here to preach to you. That's why I'm here. And that's what I'm following. And I'm working tirelessly to do it. You know why else we you know why else we do this? To strengthen and edify the body of believers. To elevate them and lift them up and train them to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. To be the hands and feet of Jesus, to serve others, to bear each other's burdens, and to train people to go out and do what I'm doing right now, to preach. You don't have to do it in front of a camera, you don't have to do it. Uh, on the street corner with a megaphone, all you got to do is just do it in your neighborhood. Tell someone else about Jesus and let them look at your life and see how he's changed you, how he's rearranged you, and how he's made a difference in your life, and what it looks like to serve Jesus Christ. Most importantly, we do it out of love. Charles Spurgeon is known as the Prince of Preachers. Anybody, no matter what denomination they are, knows who Charles Spurgeon is. Charles Spurgeon, he's the best. But all joking aside, he was a five-point Calvinist. I'm not going to get into Calvinism and Armenians today because that's not the point. But my point is this. He believed in unconditional election. He believed that God elected who was going to go to heaven and who was not. But you know what he preached? Whosoever will. Whosoever will respond because he didn't know who God elected. So he preached to everybody. And that's what we do here. All that stuff is secondary. Primary is... We preach the gospel of him and Jesus crucified, and Jesus Christ buried, and Jesus resurrected. That's what we teach, and that's what we preach. 2 Peter 3 9 says, The Lord is not slow or slack about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The very word of God says that he wants everybody to come to repentance. So what are you waiting for? What's holding you back? I got a couple questions for you. We're going to have a song of reflection, meditation. Do you believe that the gospel is foolishness? Do you believe that the gospel is foolishness? Do you believe in the prophets? Do you believe in the prophets? And the last question goes back to the first point. Do you want to be a radical for Jesus Christ? Because, in all honesty, if you're not willing to be radical for Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you believe in the prophets. It doesn't matter if you consider the gospel of foolishness or not, because if you're not willing to lay your life down and follow Jesus and be considered crazy because you follow God, then the rest of it doesn't matter. 